This week, the Comics Guys explain the history of Fawcett Comics, Part 2. Yes, thank you, Ben. This time, we will be talking about uh, more Fawcett Comics. We got up to their first comic that they released, uh, introducing how it uh, came to be. But now we need to actually talk about what's inside of that comic. So, Darren, what, what do they publish in Wiz number one? Or number two, rather. Sorry, two. the first comic is yeah. number two, yeah. So Wiz number two tells us the story of the first story in it, the lead you know, feature, is Captain Marvel. And so it tells us his origin, how uh, you know, he meets the wizard Shazam and kind of fills us in on, on you know, orphan Billy Batson. Um, and um, orphan Billy Batson very quickly kind of has no particular trouble you know, related to being an orphan. Right, like he gets a job uh, at radio station WHIZ very quickly, and you know he's uh, treated by a lot of people in who know him anyway in the comic as an adult. Right, the portrayal of Captain Marvel, the way that we frequently saw him from like the '80s on in DC when they were doing, was the idea that it was a kid in an adult's body, right? And that's a big chunk of the of the movie and kind of like the modern version of the character. That is has nothing to do with the Golden Age version of Captain Marvel. There is none of that in this character. When he becomes Captain Marvel, he is a full-grown adult. He thinks like an adult. He talks like an adult. Uh, everybody treats him like an adult. If anything, the weird thing is how much of an adult Billy Batson is, despite the fact that he's apparently somewhere around 13 years old. Right, a great many people treat him like an adult uh, uh, and take very little notice of the fact that he's a 13-year-old boy traveling around the world, having these various adventures, working for a radio station, etc. Um, there's kind of like you know no real comment on it most of the time, unless you know in some later issues they're playing it for laughs. Right, he's kind of more like Tintin or somebody like that, where everybody just sort of assumes he's a grown-up. He just looks like a kid, right? And he's Billy himself is very serious as a child. He doesn't go in for a lot of, you know, like kid stuff, basically. And he always takes being a superhero deadly seriously, even in the kind of, you know, more lighthearted adventures of Captain Marvel. Uh, it, there's very little humor based on the idea that Billy's a kid. Right. Um, so we tell that full story uh, and Billy winds up getting a job uh, where he is reporting to the local radio news station about the sort of things that uh, Captain Marvel is doing. Right. So he, he has, puts on very quickly kind of a, a Peter Parker role of, you know, it's like uh, bring me more news about Captain Marvel, you know, kind of thing. And so after we tell his origin, we then have his first actual adventure uh, with a bad guy and everything. And that is Dr. Savannah. And Dr. Savannah is in every way kind of, you know, like set up by Parker and Beck to be the opposite of Captain Marvel. He is not just an adult. He's an older man. He's physically scrawny. Uh, you know, he's short, uh, shorter even than Billy, you know, in his secret identity. Right. He's barely five feet tall. Um, and he's a brilliant super genius. And he's a, he is a you know, classic mad scientist who is going to make the world pay for not appreciating uh, his genius and that sort of thing by unleashing these various uh, you know, menaces on the world. And he will, of course, become Captain, uh, Captain Marvel's most recurring uh, villain. 
once again, the version that Bill Parker writes of Savannah is very different from the versions that even within Fawcett Comics, he will be within a few years when writers like Otto Binder uh, kind of take over this, the series. Uh, Parker's Savannah, once again, is not a joke, right? Like he's not a, he's not a comedy villain. Um, he's outrageous. It's ridiculous the things that he does, but again, he is dead serious. And Parker tries very hard to make you understand why Savannah is the way he is, right? Like he gets an origin relatively early on uh, in the series in which you learn that Thaddeus Bodog Savannah, uh, his actual name, was a you know middle European scientist with a bunch of brilliant ideas who could have been uh, a great benefit to the world uh, you know if, if, if uh, he'd been given the funding and everything to make his various uh, gadgets and, and inventions work. Um, but of course, everybody thought he was mad because he was so far in advance uh, scientifically of everyone else that nobody believed he could do any of these things, and he was basically, um, you know, driven out of town as a, you know, as as a crazy man. And so he built a rocket ship and traveled with his uh, two children. Um, what happened to his wife remains, uh, you know, an, an untold story. But his two young children, and they travel to Venus, where he sets himself up on Venus. Uh, meets the local alien uh, Venusian people um, and kind of basically becomes their king uh, and uh, installs his daughter as the empress of Venus, his daughter Butia, uh, and then periodically comes back to Earth to get his revenge on a society that you know treated him unjustly, in his opinion, right? Um, so it's not brilliant characterization, but it's a very different kind of character that you have this sort of, you know, uh, almost sympathetic portrayal when Captain Marvel is 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 opposing him. Um, those two kids that he has will also be quite important over the first, say, two or three years of the series. Parker goes back to them a lot. Uh, Beautia is the closest thing that Captain Marvel has to a romantic interest. Um, the style of the storytelling that they're doing, clearly Captain Marvel is far too busy and important to have time for an ordinary girlfriend or that sort of thing, right? So that does, that's, that never happens, but clearly he finds Beautia attractive and vice versa, she's completely into him as well. Um, and so they have kind of like a recurring flirtation where every so often Beautia will actually kind of like, you know, face turn and help Captain Marvel because he's far too handsome to die kind of thing when her dad is, you know, about to unleash something awful on him or whatever. Um, and then Savannah's son, uh, who has been treated with, you know, he's grown up on Venus with been treated with strange Venusian vitamins and that sort of thing, is actually almost as strong as Captain Marvel. And uh, the two of them have kind of like a friendly rivalry over which of them is actually stronger. And there are several early fight scenes in which the two of them uh, are, you know, punching each other through mountains and that sort of thing to, uh, you know, kind of like to to establish that. Again, Magnificus, uh, Magnificus Savannah is his name, uh, is portrayed once again as kind of more of a gray character than an outright bad guy. Um, and at one point uh, actually steps in and disguises himself as Captain Marvel in a situation where Billy Batson was unable to change into Captain Marvel. Um, and so he just kind of like dyed his hair black and put on the costume and pretended to be Captain Marvel to help out his, you know, his occasional sparring partner and, and friend. Um, Parker liked those two kids and put them in a bunch of stories. Pretty much none of the other writers uh, of Captain Marvel, certainly for Fawcett, cared about those uh, kids at all. 
And so they pretty much disappear from the series. Uh, and within a few years, Savannah has two completely different kids and has completely forgotten the existence of the first two. And they won't actually come back until DC restarts the series in the 70s. Um, but they, they all appear uh, you know, in this first story in, in Wiz number two, uh, where Savannah, in his you know, outrage at uh, how he's been mistreated by the world, uh, decides to hold the world for ransom um, by using his uh, device that is going to uh, block all radio waves. He's basically going to turn off radios uh, all over the world. He's going to make radios unable to broadcast with his, you know, like fancy radio blocking device. Uh, and of course, Captain Marvel has to fly off and, uh, you know, and, and destroy it and, uh, you know, teach him a lesson or whatever. Um, and so that's, you know, it's a, it's a two part story, basically, uh, you know, that, that is the first two stories in Wiz number two. Uh, the rest of that issue features three more actual superheroes and three other supporting characters. The other three superheroes um, also were all created by Pill Parker, but with a different artist in each case, um, because Fawcett didn't have anybody who could go that fast uh, in you know, generating new stuff, whereas Pill Parker was coming up with ideas all over the place once he got started. Um, so the, the, the number two guy in uh, Wiz, basically, and who probably was the second or third most popular character that Fawcett ever published uh, is a hero called Spy Smasher. Spy Smasher uh, is Alan Armstrong, who is a wealthy playboy, uh, you know, kind of a Bruce Wayne style character, uh, whose fiance, Eve, her father is an admiral with Navy intelligence. And fortunately for the plots, uh, Admiral, uh, the Admiral uh, is very kind of like easy to, you know, reveal secrets about what's going on with the Navy and the various problems that they're having, um, usually over dinner, over a cigar with Alan or something like that. Um, so he kind of like acts as a Commissioner Gordon type character to, you know, get our hero involved in the story. Um, and Alan will learn about some menace that is facing the world uh, through the through naval intelligence, basically just gossiping. Uh, and he has invented a gyro sub, uh, which is a vehicle that can travel uh, through the air or on land or in the water or even tunnel um, and travels around the world uh, with this, you know, costumed masked identity of Spy Smasher. And the first, you know, five or six years, he is, you know, kind of caught up in, you know, pre-World War II. And then the days of World War II, he is beating up Nazis and uh, Japanese, you know, spies and traveling around the world, uh, you know, thwarting various uh, 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 international crises and, uh, and, and the like. And by uh, 1946 or so, uh, Spy is no longer being that big a deal, apparently. He changes his name to Crime Smasher and uses the same uh, you know, tactics and the same costume and everything. Uh, but now he's fighting mobsters and that sort of thing instead of, in, instead of spies. Uh, Spy Smasher will appear across the faucet line, um, but his you know, first appearance basically is as you know, feature number two in Wiz, Wiz Comics number two. That one was also done with C.C. Beck. And so it's got the same art style as the Captain Marvel story, right? Like you kind of uh, uh, went from one into the other looking very uh, similar. The next one, uh, the next hero in Wiz number two is uh, the Golden Arrow. And this is by Parker with art by Pete Costanza. And uh, Golden Arrow is uh, Roger Parsons, 
who is a uh, you know vigilante uh, operating, uh, chasing criminals in the modern West. It's it's set in the modern day, though we'll get to that in a moment. Um, but it's the modern West of comic books, right? So it's still full of cowboys and prospectors and that sort of thing because that's just much cooler than like actually having him have adventures in downtown Los Angeles. Um, so he's always, you know, out in the desert chasing, you know, claim jumpers and assorted other, you know, criminals who drive cars and shoot, you know, like modern day guns and that sort of thing. But in all other ways, the Wild West completely hasn't changed in the comics as far as, you know, they're concerned since 1880. Uh, and so Roger Parsons rides around on a horse uh, wearing a mask sometimes and shooting bows that whose tips are made of solid gold because he has apparently so much gold that he can just afford to, you know, have his arrows uh, just get lost or whatever with their golden tips. Um, several writers after Parker completely misunderstood the premise or didn't read any of the earlier stories. And so there are several stories in the run of Golden Arrow over his career, in which case the story is clearly happening in the 19th century, right? Uh, and the writers just didn't care, or the editor didn't notice, or whatever. Um, or perhaps there was a completely different uh, Golden Arrow who was operating, you know, 80 years ago, uh, who happened to have the same name and same shtick and that sort of thing. And maybe they're two different guys, but there's nothing, there's no reference to that uh, in the comics. Um, that comic so, sounds real surreal. Yeah, it's 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 kind of fun. Um, yeah. <laughs> at one point, though, he's literally rescuing riders from the the, the Pony Express. Right, and you're like, it's 1942. I'm pretty sure the Pony Express stopped a long time ago, but okay, whatever. He is, in fact, and we've we've researched this. He is tied for second as uh, among Archer superheroes, as far as like first appearance. Right, he's the he's the second tied for second oldest uh, uh, character superhero who is an Archer. The number one is a guy named who is just called Arrow. Uh, who was from Centaur Publications. And that had come out a few months earlier. That had come out at the end of 1939. And uh, Roger Parsons' Golden Arrow shows up in February of 1940. Um, the same month as Fiction House put out a, uh, a, a an Archer superhero who was called Red Panther. So we're not really sure which of the two of them came out first because literally they have the same month, uh, you know, of the issue. On it, so it's you know it, uh, nobody's quite certain which of those two is in fact actually second. Red Panther is barely a superhero. Red Panther wears a mask, but he's basically Tarzan, right? He just happens to be a Tarzan who shoots a bow a lot. Okay. Um, so he's you know you can kind of call him a superhero because I mean, dude's wearing a costume, he's got a mask and everything, but you know he uses his bow to fight lions, right? Like not criminals, you know, kind of thing, right? So it's not really quite the same thing. Um, all of these guys predate Green Arrow, who isn't going to show up until 1941. He doesn't literally show up until next year. So um, Green Arrow, of course, on the other hand, is the guy who really introduces a trick arrow, right? Like none of these archers who were running around before Green Arrow had the kind of like gadgets on their arrows that Green Arrow did. And that was kind of like what made Green Arrow fun and different and interesting was that he was just like Batman with a bow and arrow. Right, like he had a whole utility belt worth of stuff that he would put in his arrows. He would have jet rocket arrows and sonic arrows and exploding arrows and all these other things. Uh, you know, Golden Arrow just has a bunch of arrows that he shoots you in the leg with. Right, they're just they don't do anything other than that. Um, except, of course, the tips are all made of solid gold, which you would think would be too soft to actually be a useful, you know, arrowhead. But nobody asked me, 
when they were writing these. Um, so anyway, Golden Arrow, you know, runs around solving crimes, uh, riding a horse, and you know, shooting arrows at people. The last superhero in the series is really the most interesting of them. Is a guy who is called Ibis the Invincible, and this is by uh, Parker with Bob Kingett as uh, doing the art. And uh, Ibis the Invincible comes from the same kind of story like when we talked about the early uh, adventures of Hawkman in the Hawkman episode, right? He is uh, comes from that kind of like Howard Carter craze of archeology span and King Tut and all of that stuff. Um, he, except in this case, instead of being an action archeologist, he's literally the mummy, right? He's Prince Amentep. Uh, an actual uh, wizard from ancient Egypt uh, who, you know, has magical powers. And uh, due to shenanigans by some villains, he and his love have to put themselves into suspended animation by mummifying themselves and then are reawoken in 1940 uh, to go about, you know, fighting supernatural crime again. Um, and so, except for like when he first wakes up on the table, he's not, he's not, a mummy kind of character, right? He's not like dressed in wrappings or anything. He's dressed like an Egyptian prince and he carries a weapon, which is like a staff. It's a rod basically with a, with a, um, with a, you know, animal symbol on the, on, on the front of it there. And it's called the Ibis stick. And the Ibis stick uh, basically has all kinds of ridiculous magic powers. So he's kind of a Dr. Fate sort of guy, uh, you know, as far as his, uh, you know, like powers and the kind of uh, menaces that he faces. Um, he's actually certainly the, kind of the most interesting, not Captain Marvel character in, in the book. You can see where you could have gone quite interestingly with him, but they never really did. They never kind of like, uh, uh fully grabbed hold of anything with him. Um, Bob Kingett did the first few pieces of, of art for it, but, uh, later on the art is going to be done by Frank Thorne. Um, and this will actually be Frank Thorne's first paid work in comics. Frank Thorne will go on to be much more famous doing Flash Gordon uh, and as the, you know, the most legendary of the Red Sonja artists uh, in the 50s and 60s. But Frank Thorne's first comic book work will be doing the Ibis series. And then Ibis gets uh, six issues of his own comic, basically, um, later in the war. Uh, so those that that's that's four guys right there who are in-house characters, right? Those were all created by Bill Parker, working with different artists. Um, they're you know owned outright by Fawcett, uh, and you know they're 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 the main features. To fill out the rest of the comic, they like I said, they went to Harry Chesler and just bought some other action adventure heroes. Harry Chesler, at this point, it's so early in the process, he doesn't have any other superheroes. Uh, you know, like available for people to do because Superman's only, you know, five months old. He's nobody's nobody else is contributing superheroes over there. So the other pieces that they bring in are all very kind of like standard pulp type heroes, right? Like the three other features in Wiz number two are Dan Dare, private investigator, just a guy in a suit who goes around solving crimes. Scoop Smith, who is an action reporter who travels around, you know, the city going to, uh, you know, getting the getting the scoop on interesting cases and doing criminal reporting and, and, and that sort of thing. And Lance O'Casey, who is a sailor uh, who, you know, travels around the world on his boat with his pet monkey named Mr. Hogan. 
and it has various adventures and then uh, will continue to be uh, sufficiently popular as like a backup feature in this that eventually they'll put him in Navy intelligence during the war and he will you know somehow travel around on his you know preposterous sailing vessel with his monkey um, but doing you know spying for the Navy basically and so that fills out Wiz Comics number two, right? Like that's the that that's that's the, the the feature, and it is, as we say, a smash hit. Unfortunately, this is where the story gets a little bit sad because uh, before even uh, uh, it, before it actually hits newsstands, um, and certainly before they could get any information about how successful it was going to be, Captain Billy uh, died in February of 1940, um, and uh, you know the company passed fully into the hands of his uh, third wife and his children, um, with uh, Roscoe, the youngest kid, actually being the one who was the most actively into it. So it's, uh, you know, unfortunately, while uh, Captain Billy only lived to be 55 years old, um, but the company that he founded with his, you know, his, his name on it, uh, you know, would continue on for uh, many more decades, basically. Uh, Captain Marvel himself, tremendous hit, right? Like DC starts sending the morning notes from their lawyers and that sort of thing almost immediately saying, hey, cut that crap out. You've got a guy who with a brunette wearing, you know, boots and tights and a cape who's super strong and flies around, you know, uh, beating up villains and everything. It's, you know, he looks like our guy. He sounds like our guy that you're clearly ripping off Superman. That we've already won one lawsuit uh, for over the Wonder Man. Once again, if you go back to our Captain Marvel's uh, episode, episode number two of Explain This, uh, goes through a, a chunk of the details on it. So we're not going to cover that ground entirely again, but just to kind of like keep in mind, this is where DC starts harassing Fawcett, right? Because they see Fawcett as a genuine competitor. Centaur wasn't really a genuine competitor to National Fox. Uh, Features was not a general, a, a genuine competitor. Fiction House, none of those guys were moving the kinds of numbers to make National actually worried. Fawcett was moving numbers. Fawcett was putting out, you know, within a few months, was selling enough copies of Wiz Comics uh, to actually, you know, for, for, for National not only to notice they're there, but to start kind of looking at their own numbers of like, hey, hang on a second, this guy's outselling all but our best-selling titles, you know? Uh, Captain Marvel himself is such a hit that he gets a second title like Superman did, right? Like Superman started in action and very quickly there was also a Superman comic. So there would be two comics a month, uh, you know, featuring the adventures of Superman. Very quickly, uh, there would be Wiz comics, which Captain Marvel would share with other heroes. And then Captain Marvel Adventures begins uh, about a year into his run in March of 1941. They did do a single issue test of a Captain Marvel only comic in August of 1940, and that's just called Special Edition Comics Number One, and that's the first Captain Marvel solo comic, and it was literally they just sent it out to see if that was if, if it looked like it was going to be successful, and when it was, they were like, "Hooray, great! We have a new series coming out," and they started over with another number one instead of picking up the numbering for that one to say, "Okay, Captain Marvel Adventures is now a new title." Uh, Wiz, the first of those titles would run for 13 years as a, as a comic. And you know if you know anything about Golden Age, that's an awful lot of comics compared to most Golden Age runs, right? It's one of the single longest running uh, Golden Age comics that wasn't one of the national 
you know, uh, starters, right? Like action or Superman or Batman or adventure, that sort of thing. Um, it runs 154 monthly issues before ending in June of 1953. Uh, we have the first Savannah kids story shows up in number three. Savannah's, Savannah's revealed to have children in the first issue, but they don't actually get into the story, get names and personalities until Wiz number three. Um, Wiz number seven introduces another new uh, character that Bill Parker has come up with called Dr. Voodoo. It seems like they're very excited about him. They actually put him second in the uh, in the stories, and nobody likes him. Uh, he is a fairly ordinary-looking, you know, white guy, basically uh, wearing a costume who supposedly has voodoo magic powers. He's very boring, and he winds up getting canceled pretty quickly. Um, Wiz number twenty-one. No, I'm sorry. Wiz number sixteen to eighteen. All right, so by this point, by the time they're 15, 20 issues in, um, Timely is also out there competing with them too, right? Now we're in the full-scale you know, age of Golden Age comics. This is every newsstand now has dozens of superheroes with splashy colors and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and Fawcett is just like everybody else. If somebody does something that succeeds, that's a hit, by God, they're going to rip it off. Right, uh, you know, timely was the same way. National, you know, even national was willing to swipe something if it looked like it was, you know, going to be worth it for sales. And so, after timely made a big splash with their Human Torch fights Submariner stories, right, the the Human Torch versus Submariner series of stories, um, made kind of like a big splash and sold a bunch of uh, uh, comics and basically established the existence of a comic book universe, right? Like a, you know, established that Submariner and Human Torch were happening in the same universe and that they could meet each other and maybe not get along and even fight each other, right? Which was extremely exciting to, you know, eight-year-olds of 1941, 1942. Um, Fawcett was like, well, we have to do the same thing, right? Like this, we have to establish that our characters could meet each other. It's very, you know, exciting. And so issues number 16 to 18, Captain Marvel and Spy Smasher through a series of extremely implausible plot developments, including briefly a brainwashing um, by, you know, uh, secret agents, uh, basically have to fight each other. Captain Marvel and Spy Smasher uh, get into like this kind of like long running conflict. Um, unlike Submariner and Human Torch, this is clearly not a fair fight. Spy Smasher is just a guy. Right, he he drives a cool vehicle and everything, but it's completely implausible that he could hang in a fight with Captain Marvel, who can you know juggle elephants. Right, it's just it, right. it's completely preposterous, and yet somehow they manage to pull it off. Right, they 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 write Spy Smasher sufficiently sufficiently smart and sufficiently interesting and that sort of thing. It's almost kind of like reading it today is almost kind of like seeing the 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 primitive roots of Superman versus Batman, hmm. right? You can almost kind of see how you could eventually tell that sort of story between these two, because Spy Smasher is thinking circles around Captain Marvel, who is mostly relying on his brawn in this situation. Um, but they battle each other basically for three consecutive issues, and it is you know kind of one of the more memorable uh, uh, conflicts, basically, unlike uh, timely and their stuff. They never really went back to it. Fawcett did the one thing and then never really kind of uh, uh, picked it up. Though they would do crossovers, they would mostly do crossovers that were kind of like within the family, right? Uh, they, you know, Captain Marvel would meet the other members of the Marvel family and that sort of thing, which we'll get to in a minute. But he, Captain Marvel, rarely ran into any of the other 
uh, Fawcett characters. He meets Bullet Man and Bullet Girl uh, once or twice, um, but for the most part, they kind of like stayed in their own in their own lanes. In uh, Wiz number twenty-one, we meet uh, the first members, the first other members of the Marvel family, and this is kind of like a test for what will happen later. Uh, it turns out that uh, uh, Savannah is uh, uh, up to you know his various shenanigans and decides to have some of his agents kidnap Billy Batson. Unfortunately, he's not terribly specific about which Billy Batson he wants, and it turns out there are three other people living in the greater you know area of the city or whatever who are also named Billy Batson. And uh, so the criminals, the henchmen, don't know which one they're supposed to kidnap. So you know they quite sensibly kidnap all of them. Um, and the three uh, other Billy, Batten, Billy Batsons will be referred to in this story and forever afterwards as Fat Billy, Tall Billy, and Hill Billy. <laughs> and each of these three, is their appearance is based on somebody who worked at Fawcett at the time, right? Fred Taggart was the model for Fat Billy Batson, and Paul Peck was the t- model for Tall Billy Batson, and hilariously, Ed Hamilton, who you know, fairly famous science fiction writer and one of the great Legion writers later on, um, is the model that they use for Hillbilly Batson. Uh, and so it turns out that when uh, you know they are they are all forced uh, to say Shazam to prove whether or not they are in fact Captain Marvel, and through some weirdness of the magic spell that transforms Billy Batson, each of the other three Billy Batsons are also transformed into a Captain Marvel-like figure. Um, however, because they're dividing up the spell, uh, each of them only has one third the power of the real Captain Marvel, right? So the, each one is like one third as strong and one third as fast and one third as smart. And probably Hillbilly is actually considerably less than one third as smart. Um, but they, you know, they they help uh, Captain Marvel save the day, and they all agree that they're going to share the secret. Now that they all know, we, you know, the Billy Batson's actual secret identity, they're all Billy Batsons, so they have, uh, you know, they swear on the the, the Batson name basically that they will never uh, reveal each other's uh, identities, and they will be called after, you know, the, if we have a Captain Marvel, they they are each referred to as the three Lieutenant Marvels, and they become kind of recurring background characters. Um, once again, Bill Parker found them hilarious. Autobinder didn't use them as much, uh, but they do continue to show up on and off and then are brought back, of course, in the 1970s by DC. Uh, so the, the Lieutenant Marvels make their, make their first appearances. Meanwhile, over in Captain Marvel Adventures, uh, Bill Parker is now writing multiple you know, uh, comics uh, per month, right? Like turning out all this different material. And he's swamped. He can't keep up. Uh, you know, with, uh, with 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 all of the writing uh, responsibilities that he's got, so Fawcett hires uh, a guy named Otto Binder, and Otto Binder had been kicking around the New York publishing scene for a while. Um, he had been an agent uh, in kind of like the pulp fiction, the exactly the kind of like pulp magazines that Captain Billy would never go to, right? The science fiction ones, the fantasy ones, uh, the ones with you know, kind of like a, a, a Ad, you know, adventure stories with some kind of like supernatural element to them. Uh, Otto had had worked as an agent, um, marketing scripts for other writers to help make a living while he was also trying to sell his own scripts. Right, like he since he lived in New York, he would uh, uh, correspond with other writers around the country who would mail him stuff, mail him spec scripts that he would then bring around and try to sell to the publishers in New York City. 
Um, one of the people that he did this for was Robert E. Howard. Uh, and so Otto, as acting as Robert Howard's uh, agent, basically selling Conan stories, had actually made a pretty good living. You know, uh, that that had allowed him kind of like the freedom to also kind of work on his own stuff. Um, he also wrote, you know, for other pulp magazines himself. He worked for Mort Weisinger. Uh, he worked for Ray Palmer over at Amazing Stories. And then he took a gig with Harry Chesler, the packager. Um, you know, just kind of like writing spec scripts basically to be sold to other comic books. Um, and Fawcett bought a couple of his scripts, liked them, and said, you know what, in the same manner that, uh, that, that Timely had done, you know what, we should just hire this guy outright. He's pretty good, and why are we paying a third person, uh, you know, to be a middleman between us? Let's just hire him straight on as a staff guy. Um, and by that point, uh, Robert E. Howard had kind of gotten too big for uh, Binder to still be his agent. He needed like a real literary agent. Um, and so Binder had, you know, lost, uh, you know, that fairly sweet gig. And so he took a full-time job working for Fawcett, which was, you know, at the time, either the number one or number two most successful comic book publisher, right? The, what they were selling. So, uh, so Fawcett uh, basically made Otto Binder the writer of Captain Marvel Adventures first. And over time, Binder became the lead writer basically on everything Captain Marvel and most of the other Marvel family stuff. He became the guy that we most associate uh, with the character today. When you look back at kind of like the most famous stories, Bill Parker did a lot of the early creative work for it, but Parker had stopped writing Captain Marvel by 42 or 43, whereas Binder is still writing into the 50s. And so he's kind of like the guy that you almost associate more. And Binder and C.C. Beck became close friends and worked together on a bunch of stuff. Um, so Captain Marvel Adventures number nine is the first Otto Binder story uh, for Fawcett. Uh, in number 12, he tells the story where Captain Marvel joins the army. Um, you know, rather than doing the, 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 the kind of the Superman gag for this, Captain Marvel becomes kind of like an official you know, agent of the army, his captain rank is recognized. And he is, uh, you know, like made a, you know, an, an agent of the US so that he can travel abroad and, you know, punch out Hitler at every opportunity, basically. Issue number 19 of CMA, it comes out in December of 1942. We're well into the war at this point. And it is the first appearance of Mary Marvel. Now that we're, you know, the, the Lieutenant Marvels already exist. And Otto writes a story uh, thinking it would be cool. Um, actually, we're doing these out of order. I hadn't uh, quite realized that. So let me go back first. And before we get into Mary Marvel, let me put this in the correct order and say, OK, the first thing that happens actually is uh, Wiz number 25 introduces uh, a character called Captain Marvel Jr. Captain Marvel Jr. is right. another, another boy. Uh, a teenager named Freddie Freeman, who, uh, you know, through just being orphans on the street and, you know, being hustlers, basically, uh, Billy and Freddie know each other and they're, they're, they're friends. Um, Freddie uh, works at a newsstand, like while Billy is working at a radio station, right? And Freddie uh, has, gets tied up in an adventure involving Captain Nazi. And Captain Nazi is the great Nazi supervillain, you know, kind of like well, certainly the first uh, Nazi character to be given a chance, right? Like the first Nazi character where you had to say, you know what? He's dangerous. 
He's a threat to the heroes. He's a genuine supervillain that you have to be scared of because at any given time, he's just as strong as Captain Marvel. You know, it's a it's a guy that Captain Marvel has to worry about, right? And like Nazis were not treated that way in the comics, right? Nazis were comedy bad guys who just would always, you know, trip over their own banana peels and, you know, be made fun of uh, up to that point. Captain Nazi is the first Nazi character who's a menace. And in that story, Captain Nazi hits young Freddie Freeman and injures him very badly. And in order to save his life, Captain Marvel basically asks Shazam to share some of his power with this boy uh, in order to save his life, right? He's going to die in my arms here if we don't give him some of my powers so that he can heal up. And Shazam, you know, they have a they have an argument, and Captain Marvel's like, you know, no, I insist. This is my friend. I'm not going to let him die. You know, if you have to give him all of my powers, do it. I would rather, you know, like he stay alive, basically, than you know, and then he can be your champion. So Shazam finally, you know, gives in on this, basically, and Freddie Freeman uh, says his magic word, which is not Shazam. Sh uh, Freddie Freeman's magic word that Shazam gives him for this is literally Captain Marvel. That's the word that he says to transform into Captain Marvel Jr. This is hilarious, of course, because it means that Captain Marvel Jr. is the one superhero on Earth who cannot say his own name. Uh, because if he does, he will transform back into uh, Freddie Freeman, right? It's like literally he has to go around without ever kind of like, you know, with, with other people introducing him, basically. Because if he ever starts to say his entire full name, the first two words of his name are his secret word, his secret magic word. Uh, so anyway, with his new magic word of Captain Marvel, he is transformed uh, into uh, the world's mightiest boy. Why he is not transformed into an adult is never explained. He basically now has become Captain Marvel's kind of like occasional teen sidekick, right? He is, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, when he transforms, he transforms into a kid version of Captain Marvel. Once again, seems a little unfair, right? Like they're friends and their secret identities. They're about the same age in their secret identities. One of them turns into a grown-up and one of them turns into a kid. That seems kind of shaky, but okay, sure. It certainly made them, you know, easy to tell apart. Also, his color scheme is completely the opposite, right? He's got a, a blue costume where, Cap where Captain Marvel's is red, etc. Anyway, the two of them then continue to, they, you know, get a uh, their revenge on Captain Nazi. And... Um, Captain Marvel Jr. goes on to his own series, which we will discuss in a bit when we're talking about the other titles. Um, Captain Marvel Jr., of course, continues uh, to transform back into a boy who has, is on crutches, right? Like somehow he never actually does heal, which once again, always seemed kind of unfair to me. Like, you know, all the times that he transformed into Captain Marvel Jr., he still was like lame when he was uh, literally lame, uh, walking around with a crutch in his... Uh, childhood and and in in his secret identity and somehow nobody ever fixed that right like it's you know it's everybody all these people in this strip who have magic powers and stuff nobody can just kind of like wave a wand and make him better but apparently we why can't transform what's that why ever untransform at that point it's uh, an, an excellent question once again that is never resolved right like why would you ever go back to being the kid you know the the, the kid with a broken back right like that makes no sense but but he did on a regular basis so now that we've got that uh, story settled, so now we've got Captain Marvel Jr. is out there, right? In issue number uh, 19 of Captain Marvel Adventures, Captain Marvel and Captain Marvel Jr. Uh, are involved in a story together. 
in but they're investigating as kids as Billy and Freddie basically and they find the woman who ran the orphanage that first that Billy first grew up in and she's involved in a whole complicated story and Billy learns during this story that he had a sister and they were separated when they became orphans when their parents died in a car accident many years ago uh they had become separated from each other and this other girl had been raised by a different family and so Billy and uh, uh, Freddie like are meeting her, and of course she immediately gets kidnapped in a completely unrelated set of crimes, right? Like that has nothing to do with anything except that she just happened to be on the scene, and she's taken hostage by some bad guys. And uh, while Billy and Freddie are you know transforming into Captain Marvel and Captain Marvel Junior to save the day, she has already figured out who they are, and she says, "Boy." It would be so great if, you know, like I also had magical powers. Man, if I just said Shazam, and of course she is at that point struck by a lightning bolt and, uh, you know, turns into Mary Marvel, turns into once again a kid version, in this case a young girl version of the adult Captain Marvel. Um, there is no other explanation except that she's sisters and apparently that's how the magic works. Right, like uh, uh, since she's a, she's a sister, uh, she must somehow have been affected by the same magic that gave Billy his powers. It's completely confounding to Billy himself when he shows up. <laughs> you know, it's just, he completely did not expect this, uh, and is is kind of startled by it. But she turns out to be an awesome superhero uh, by herself, and uh, you know she saves the day without needing their help, which is kind of excellent. And uh, we then kind of go on about uh, the, the story. These three now have become kind of the lead characters of what will be called the Marvel family, right? And with all of the other assorted Marvels that will show up, we'll get to a couple more of them, plus the Lieutenant Marvels. The Marvel family really consists of about eight or 10 different guys. Uh, but the three of them are the ones that we mean when we refer to the Marvel family themselves, right? Um, so her first appearance, like I said, is number 19. Um, then in number 22, we're still in the war. We're in uh, early 1943. We will get what I insist to this day is the single greatest golden age story ever told. And it's called The Monster Society of Evil. And mm -hmm. in this story, that will go for two years plus. It's literally 25 issues long. Uh, the, a new supervillain will come along who is uh, very secret and mysterious in the first few stories. We don't ever see his face or anything, but he gathers all of the supervillains of the world. Everybody who has appeared in a Captain Marvel story up to this point, plus a bunch of new people. Plus he also recruits Hitler, Mussolini, and Tojo onto his supervillain team, <laughs> right? Which just establishes that he must be the king of the bad guys, right? Like if even Hitler and, and Mussolini and Tojo are saying, yes, boss, to this guy, right? Then you realize that you have, you know, like set up the greatest villain at that point. And he creates an organization to menace the Marvel family, basically, that is called the Monster Society of Evil. Most of the members are in fact not human, they're mostly monsters. Um, that was kind of like common for Captain Marvel's bad guys at that point. And over the course of two years in the comic, running literally from 1943 to the end of the war, every issue between issue number 22 and number 46 of Captain Marvel Avengers ends in a cliffhanger, mm. continuing the story, right? Now, the stories themselves go all over the place over these two years. So you can't really say it's, is it all one story? There's, there's you know, 25 parts to it, 
but the parts are all related to each other. And every issue, like I said, ends in the middle of one of them, right? Hmm. With a cliffhanger ending at the end of each one to bring you back next week, uh, bring you back next month, right? Um, and the stories are amazing. Each of the stories, you know, like he has a collection of just the worst supervillains in the world, and they're all teaming up. How can our heroes are so badly outnumbered? How can they possibly do anything about this? And partway through the story, it is revealed that this mysterious voice on the radio that has been leading them all uh, and giving them their instructions and coordinating not only like this wave of crime, but literally World War II. <laughs> right, which is only happening because this bad guy has ordered it and is giving direct orders to Hitler and, and to Tojo, uh, is revealed to be a villain called Mr. Mind. And Mr. Mind is revealed like halfway through the series to be a worm from the planet Venus. And he's about three inches long. And he wears a uh, like a like a, a voice box, like a like a um, radio uh, uh, speaker basically, around his neck so that everybody can hear him when he talks because he's only three inches tall. And he is Captain Marvel's greatest enemy. He's uh, even smarter than Captain Marvel. And he is clearly, by just by you know the record that he runs up, the most successful supervillain of the Golden Age, right? It takes Captain Marvel two years to beat him. At the end of the story, he, in fact, is executed. They electrocute him in the electric chair a three inch tall worm, <laughs> right? They strap him in to a little tiny version of an electric chair and they kill him in the last story. He will not in fact come back again until the seventies when DC will bring him back when they realize they own the rights to this guy. And the explanation will be, uh, it turns out electricity doesn't work on worms from Venus. That's just, you know, that's, that's, their, that's their out. And then he's back to, you know, causing crimes in the seventies in basically. Uh, but it is, like I said, it is uh, the single greatest accomplishment, I think, of Golden Age superhero storytelling is that sustained two-year run of the Monster Society of Evil. It's it's a serial, right? Like, it's exactly like watching a serial movie um, to, to, to see all that happen. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Captain Marvel, tremendously successful. Mary Marvel gets her own series. Uh, at last, that goes until you know 1948, uh, and uh, you know she will she will be able to like carry her own run. Captain Marvel Junior takes over Master Comics, which we will discuss later. Uh, for basically starting with issue number 21, it becomes Captain Marvel Junior and some other characters, and very quickly becomes Captain Marvel Junior by himself. He's uh, you know like far more uh, you know popular than any of the other characters who appeared in, in Master. Uh, the run that he does in Master um, is mostly done by Mac Rayboy, who is one of my favorite Golden Age artists. And he does some of the most fabulous uh, pieces that Rayboy himself will ever do uh, for the covers of Captain Marvel Jr. They're these super patriotic, uh, hyper-realistic compared to the cartoony version that C.C. Beck would draw of this character with, you know, like the, his... his uh, um, costume is like tight and shows off every muscle and the anatomy is like really, you know, realistic. Um, and he's always doing something like punching a giant swastika and like smashing it into pieces or something like that. Right. Or he's, you know, uh, carrying a flag at the, you know, vanguard of like a squadron of American bombers. They're all super patriotic covers and everything. And they're, uh, they're fabulous. They're, that's a, it's a, it's a great run. Um, Captain Marvel is at this point so popular, he is now outselling Superman on a regular basis. 
National has filed, uh, you know, like multiple lawsuits. Uh, Fawcett's got, you know, their lawyers are just as good as Nationals at this point, right? Like Nationals basically become DC because they've merged with, uh, the, you know, the other companies to uh, to form what will be DC. Uh, but Fawcett is not going down without a fight. Captain Marvel is far too valuable. Captain Marvel gets his own serial, gets his own movie serial uh, that uh, is uh, fabulously successful. Um, and if you haven't seen it, is one of the funniest things uh, you could watch today. It's it's great fun. It's super exciting. And uh, if you're familiar with the modern version of Captain Marvel from like the 1970s on, it's hilariously violent, right? Captain Marvel just incidentally kills a whole bunch of people <laughs> in this movie for no particular reason other than it was easier than not killing them. <laughs> you know, and watching him be this kind of like offhandedly violent with a bunch of like ordinary guys that he should have no particular difficulty defeating um, is a hilarious running joke throughout the entire, you know, whatever it is, 15 part series. Uh, that is, you know, when I've shown it to people, they're stunned and horrified. It's <laughs> like Captain Marvel, but he's the nicest hero in the world. Uh, no. No, he's totally not. <laughs> so anyway, we will pick up uh, that. That should run us through the Captain Marvel set of characters. And uh, next week in part three of Fawcett, we will run through all of the uh, other characters we didn't cover, the characters who weren't in Wiz, and also uh, talk about how Fawcett Comics came to its final sad ending. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I've been Steve Tasker. And I'm Darren Watts. Have a good night. <laughs>